challenging the establishment, kind of bucking against the system and sticking it to the authorities is something that, well, I don't know, some of us, maybe, maybe more than some of us, kind of enjoy doing. I don't know if it's just my Australian character or whether that's something that we see more broadly, but there's something about authority that we don't like. We want to take out the tall poppy. We want to cut down those who stand up and tell us what to do. We don't like people telling us what to do, where to sit, where to go, how to eat. We we just don't like it. And the idea of someone who is greater than us, who has authority over us, is not an idea that we naturally run to. We don't love that idea. We want to be free to do what we want any old time. That's what it means, isn't it? And so we come up with all these strategies to avoid authority. The egalitarian spirit, cutting down the tall poppy. But what we'll find is that when it comes to God, none of these strategies work. You can't run from him. You can't cut him down. When it comes to the true and living God, we will see that there is no other. The story so far in Exodus uh, has taken us from Really, the beginning where God made promises to a man, a man named Abraham. And that promise has been controlling history ever since. The promise was that God would bless the world through Abraham and his family, and that the world would be blessed through him. They would take his family to a new land, and in that land, prosper them and see all the nations of the world blessed through him. That promise has still been controlling all that's been going on in the book of Exodus so far. At the present time, the the Israelites, uh, the family of Abraham and his descendants, they're in slavery in Egypt under this Pharaoh, and it's harsh, it's awful. They're they're longing for the day that God delivers them, that God saves them. Where is this God? Will he be faithful to his promises? They're the questions going through their minds at this moment. And we heard last week, as Michael brought God's word to us, that God heard their cry. This is the God of history, a God who hears us and continues to keep his promises. So in Exodus 5, verse 1, we hear this. Later, Moses and Aaron went in and said to Pharaoh, this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel says, let my people go so they may hold a festival for me in the wilderness. Let my people go. Now, if you're just reading this story for the first time and you come along this week, Kind of sounds like the cry you'd hear from a little pimply teenager, doesn't it? Let my people go, you know, let them go. He's like this this whining kind of Moses and Aaron coming before the Pharaoh of all Egypt who has all of them under slavery. You're just kind of like, ah. And that's exactly how the king Pharaoh takes it. But what we're about to see is that this God is the God who has no rivals. None at all. There is none like him. We met this God personally last week, uh, and we saw that we had the amazing privilege of knowing his name. I just want to stop and reflect as a kind of a side point for a moment. What does it mean to know someone's name? Why is that important? Well, I take it that to know someone's name opens up a whole level of relationship, of, of possibility of knowing them. You can actually know their name. You don't just know them from a distance. One of my favorite bands, uh, some of you will know, is U2. I love you too. I love their music. I love the, if I could choose another job, my first priority for jobs in the whole world would be this job. My second job, uh, if I wasn't doing this, would be the bass player of you too. It's just it's such a big noise, stands there, does hardly anything, and like the whole stadium is filled with just that one bass. Anyway, I love you too. Uh, and they're just 
this is a great band. And last year, I was at a Christian conference listening to a speaker by the name of Gary Miller. Uh, now, Gary's actually coming here in April. He's, he's speaking for us at um, the Multiply conferences and we'll be preaching in the last sermon uh, on the Exodus series of the Golden Calf for us here uh, on April the 10th. Um, so there's a conference we'll tell you about coming up in a little bit, side announcement in the sermon. I'll get in trouble for that later. Um, but anyway, I was listening to Gary at this church planting conference speak and he's just kind of going on. He's from Northern Ireland. He's from Ireland. So he's got this thick Irish accent. I love listening to it. Um, and he's speaking and he's going on about this stuff. And he says, anyway, I was talking to Bono the other day. And I'm just like, what? He's like, he was talking to Bono the other day. That's what he said. For the next 10 minutes, I'm going, how is that possible? Like he'd lost him. I didn't hear anything he said on Deuteronomy from that point forward. I'm just like, you were talking to Bono? Like you got to talk to Bono. You know Bono. Bono knows you. How is, how is that? I've been to concerts where I hear Bono, who if you don't know who he is, he's the lead singer of U2. Uh, he knows his name and, and Bono knows him. They kind of were in the same area or something. They kind of, I don't know what it is, but this is crazy. <laughs> we have a phrase for that. There's something special about that. It's called knowing someone on a first name basis. It's the privilege that knowing their name gives to be able to say, yeah, I know Bono. I was chatting with him and I can, I can introduce you. I've seen Bono from a distance, but Gary knows him up front. He knows his name. I want us to get the wonder of this with the creator of the universe, the God who made all things, who so many on this planet refer to in vague terms, the guy in the sky, um, uh, God, the creator, the unmoved mover, whatever way we speak of him, all sorts of people refer to him as that we think that there is some God, some thing out there that made us or that, that, is, that is there. That God made himself known and his name is Yahweh. At this moment in history, on, 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 in the history of everything that exists, God made himself known and said, you can call me Yahweh. Everyone else has names like God or a deity, or, but here I have revealed myself to you. He's opening up relationship to his people, to Moses and the Israelites and to you and I, that we might know him as more than from a distance. And that name Yahweh, as Michael told us last week, means I will be who I will be. Watch and learn. I am the God who is, and this is my name, and that is what you can call me. Like Gary was talking to Bono the other day. <laughs> that was American. It was awful. We can speak to Yahweh, the one who made you and sustained you, has let you know his name. Now, the tragedy of the passage this week, as we look at chapters 5 to 10, like it's a fair bit to look at, and don't worry, we're not going to go through all of it verse by verse. So it's not going to be here all day. But the great tragedy is what happens with Pharaoh. See, have you ever watched being around a celebrity and watched someone come up to that celebrity thinking that they're cooler than the celebrity? You ever seen that? People are like, oh yeah, you know, I'm pretty cool as well. And they go up to the, 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 around the celebrity. It's just kind of wrong. There's something wrong about it. It'd be like Gary going up to Bono and going... Oh, you want my autograph? <laughs> like, oh, no, I'm looking, no, talk to my manager. Oh, I don't have time to sign your thing. There's something repulsive about that, something wrong. This is Bono. This is one of the most influential rock musicians of the last 40, 50 years. And Gary, some Northern Ireland church planner, can't walk up and be like, you want my signature? Step in line. Like, there's something repulsive about that. When people act too cool for school, 
Do you know who I am? (laughs) I'm so above them. It's exactly what Pharaoh does. Verse 2, Pharaoh responded, Who is Yahweh? (laughs) Who is Yahweh that I should obey him by letting Israel go? I don't know anything about Yahweh. And besides, I will not let Israel go. Too cool for school. The creator of the universe has revealed himself and is revealing himself here throughout history. And Yahweh says, I don't know your God. I'm God. Rather than seeking who this God is, Pharaoh continues to exercise making himself God. So he ups the Israelites' workload. And again... He ups their workload for a reason here. So that they will forget about their God. They'll forget about these things. And there's another little side note I want to point out here. Isn't it funny how when our workload goes up, often it's God who drops off our radar. That we, like the Israelites, actually forget about who he is and what he's done. Things are tough. Things are hard. Work gets busy. And we don't come to church or we don't go to connect group or we don't read the Bible because, well, I'm busy. Satan has been using the same tactics from the beginning. He hasn't got a new trick in the book. And he's doing exactly what he wants to do here with Israel. It works. Look at 5 verse 21. The Israelite foremen, they confront Moses and Aaron. They say this, May the Lord take note of you and judge, they say to Moses and Aaron, because you have made us reek in front of Pharaoh and his officials, putting a sword in their hands to kill us. Look at what you've done, making us go talk about your God stuff. Forget about him. Let's just go back to how it was and have food on the table and go on with life. And And then Moses starts doubting. One God sent himself. Look at 22. Lord, why have you caused trouble for this people? Did you say that? Why have you caused trouble for this people? And why did you ever send me? So he's still trying to run. Ever since I went into Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's caused trouble for these people and you haven't delivered your people at all. And we'll see God's answer to that question in a moment. To that statement of the God who doesn't deliver. Will this God come through or not? The question that's on everyone's minds at this point in the, in the narrative is this. Is God who he says he is? Will he be who he says he will be? Will he fulfill his promises? And is that not the same question we have today? Is this God who he says he is? Will he do what he said he would do? It seems that that's almost the controlling question for the next six chapters. Everything from this point on happens so that people may know God. Knowing God seems to be the central theme of what happens from here forward. Let me just show you how often this comes up. To the Israelites in 6 verse 7. Uh, God says, you will know that I am Yahweh, your God. Um, the Egyptians in 7.5 will know that I am Yahweh. In 8 verse 10, you may know that there is no one like Yahweh, our God. In 9 verse 14, you will know there is no one like me in all the earth. Knowing God is what is on view. Nine to ten times, God says he will make himself known. Known to Pharaoh, the Egyptians, to Moses, the Israelites, even to the whole world through these events. And the question for us today, the thing to walk out of here, having heard what God has said to us, is this. Do you know this God? Is your God the one who you think is there? Is is it the true and living God we meet on the pages of history? Because as we heard at the beginning, Pharaoh did not know this God. And that was about to change whether he wanted it to or not.
well, as a powerful display of who this God is and so that people may know him. Yahweh uses these 10 plagues to make himself known. Really, there's, there's two reasons that we see uh, the plagues of the powerful God happen for. There's two reasons why they happen. Number one, they happen as a sign for Israel. That God is going to keep his promises. Their question of can we trust this God is going to be answered with a yes and very, very clearly. Uh, in, in chapter 6, verse 6, God lays out what he'll do. It's on the screen. He'll deliver them. He'll redeem them from slavery. He'll make them his people. He'll be their God. He'll bring them into the land. He'll make them prosper in that land. There's this massive long list of promises to these people who have really done nothing. They don't deserve it. They're just descendants of someone who God promised something to. And even Abraham didn't deserve it. It was all God's blessing from the beginning. God just went, I want to love you because I want to love you because I want to love you. He didn't deserve it in any way, shape or form. And so so here they are finding themselves in incredible blessing. Being brought out of slavery, being made the people of the creator of the universe, that he would be their God. He'd reveal himself to them, that they might know him, that he would bring them into this promised land, into relationship with him. They're amazing promises, aren't they? I mean, think about that. It's not just some writing on the pages of a book. This is the God who made you, who is offering these promises to a people that are real, that you might know him. But listen to how they respond in verse 9. Moses told this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their broken spirit and hard labor. How easy it is to miss the promises of God when the reality of the world is so strong in front of us. Do you find that? Do you find that your eyes drop from how he's revealed himself to us? That you miss who he is and what he's done? You get so overwhelmed with the circumstances and struggles of life that we, you can't lift your eyes up from the path in front of you, nor open your ears to hear the promises of God. This section of history is here to say, stop and listen. Listen to the God who is there, who is revealing himself to you. Know him on his terms. Not some way you'd like to think him to be. See who this God is. The, Egyptian, the, the Israelites, they're, they're so like us. The same hard hearts, not seeing, not hearing, so caught up with here and now, with the pains and sorrows of life, that they miss the incredible joy that is on offer to them. Sometimes I think today that can be us hugely, can't it? We end up being like kids in the back seat of the car, you know, when you leave to go on holidays and you're going on a long journey and you, you, you get basically just across, you're going north, you get across the Harbour Bridge and the kids are like, are we there yet? You're like, no, we, we, you know, we're going to pay here. It's a long way. Like, oh, are we there yet? We can be like that with God, impatient with his timing. Are we there yet? I want to get out. I don't see no holidays. This is boring. Get me out. Listen to the phenomenal promises of this God. Recognize who he is. God is about to show them and us loud and clear that he is God and there is none like him and he keeps his promises. The first reason the plagues came was to remind Israel that their God is good. And we'll see more of that in the following weeks. 
And the main reason we see this week over the next six chapters is because what God wants to make known that he is God to Pharaoh. The plagues come because of Pharaoh's defiance of this God. He's too cool for school. I'm the king of the world. Get behind me type of attitude, which is just wrong. Look at 6 verse 6. God says, I will deliver you from the forced labor of the Egyptians to that forced labor and free you from slavery to them. I will redeem you, buy you back with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. What is going on here isn't just some psycho God going crazy in the world around us. We have Pharaoh who is phenomenally rejecting this God forcing people into slavery, upping their labor for his comfort, for his glory, making the world about him. And that, you will see, is phenomenally offensive to God. This is God's judgment. His right and just judgment on Pharaoh rejecting his command. God said, let my people go. Pharaoh's response was, no, make me. We so underestimate the offense of rejecting the life-giving God. The fact that there's part of me that thinks, you know, maybe this is a little bit over the top. Maybe these 10 signs and 10 plagues that God has done here, maybe he's gone a little bit too much. How I underestimate the reality of rejecting this God. Saying to the one who gives you life, I don't want you. I was trying to think of something equivalent, some idea that would help us. And I, the only thing I could think of is it's like walking up to your mum after she's raised you and done all these good things for you and, and, and supported you, nurtured you as a baby, set you up, sent you to school, done all this wonderful stuff. It's like walking up to her and punching her in the face. That is offensive. So is ignoring the God who sustains us and who made us and thinking that we don't need him far, far more offensive. And so God makes himself known in 10 plagues. And there's something very interesting about the start of them. Have a look through this a bit later on in the week. Every single start of each section starts with these words. I don't know if you saw it. The Lord said. There is no question behind the narrator's mind here who is in control in these moments. God said and these plagues happen. He is in control every step of the way. There's even another sign before the plague start. Moses comes up, puts his snake on the ground, his sta- snake, his staff on the ground, and it becomes a snake. And Mo- Mo- you know, Pharaoh's like, whoa, but then he gets his magicians. His magicians make their staffs come into the snakes. But then Moses' snake goes and eats up all the other ones. What's going on here? This is a God who knows no rivals. Let me quickly go through these plagues. Then we see um, the plague of blood. There's a, there's a slide on the on the screen that will just kind of show you where they are. So the first one is, is the, the plague of blood. The river turns into blood. Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to let my people, your people go. Then there's frogs. Frogs then cover the land of Egypt. Pharaoh promises to let the Israelites go, then changes his mind. <laughs> and what's interesting to note in, in the staff turning into a snake and the blood and the frogs, in each of these three cases at the beginning, Pharaoh's magicians can do the same thing by their magic practices. Now, I don't know why if the river Nile was already turned to blood, you'd want to make more of it blood, but they do. I don't know if there's a plague of frogs, why you'd want to say, look, we can make frogs come as well and bring more frogs on. Maybe they were French and were about to be French and they love frogs. I don't know what it was, but there's something here that 
that they actually, they can still do it. And what does that tell us? The Bible doesn't shy away from the reality that there's more to life than just the material and physical. The spiritual realm is real and it is powerful. And that's what's on view here. The, the Pharaoh's magicians are actually, actually able to do stuff. Stuff happens. There is a spiritual realm. But the message couldn't be clearer every time. Yes, the spiritual realm is powerful, but God is the most powerful. He is a God without rival. In him, we have nothing to fear because he is in control of everything. And from that moment on, when it gets to gnats, they can't do anything. The magicians can't. I don't know what it was about gnats. They're too small. Or I'm not sure, but they just couldn't produce the same thing. The dust turns to gnats and it covers the people and the animals of, of Egypt. Each time we see it, each time Moses comes to Pharaoh, he comes with God's command, let my people go. Each time Pharaoh responds, sometimes he, he thinks about it and says, yes, you can go. But then he changes his mind. Other times he just says, no. But from this point on, there's a difference in how the plague comes. Yes, Pharaoh's magicians could um, do some of it. But now we're going to see another difference between God and Pharaoh's magicians. From this point on, the plagues only affect the Egyptians. As they keep coming through, through um, flies, livestock, boils, hail, locust, darkness, they only affect the Egyptians, not the Israelites. The Israelites are free. No flies come on the Israelites. God is making very clear, I, I am making a distinction between my people and you. I am God and I control all things. So the flies come and the livestock, they die and boils come all over the Egyptians and their animals. Hail comes down like no storm they've ever seen or will ever see again. Humans, animals, trees, they all get wiped out. Pharaoh actually at this point asks for forgiveness. Speak to your God. Ask him to forgive me and I'll, I'll let the Israelites go. But as soon as the hail is removed and the challenge is taken away, his heart hardens. I'll turn to Jesus on my deathbed. When I'm in that situation, that last moment when, you know, I, I can see no other. It's a line I hear so often. Or I'll pray to God in, in, in a time of great need. It doesn't last long. Pharaoh shows it. My life shows it. Locust, darkness. And then we'll see the plague of the firstborn, which we'll look at next week. What do we make of these phenomenal signs? I want to kind of pull them together and show you a few key things. The first one is blatantly clear, isn't it? There is no one like this God. Do you see his power? Can you imagine trying to stand up to him? Do you see how pathetic rebellion against him is? <laughs> There is no one like him, no one with his power. Second thing we see, and again, I don't know if you saw this, but look, look through it again later. It's by the same act that God simultaneously saves his people and brings judgment on those who defy him. Say it again. By the same act, God saves his people and brings judgment on those who defy him. 
The same event can bring out opposite outcomes for different people. And we see that's one of the ways that God keeps working throughout history. You see, salvation comes to the Israelites whom God has chosen through the same act of judgment on Pharaoh. They are saved out of Egypt and they come out. You see this the same way in the way that Jesus works. In 1 Corinthians 1, he says, Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Message of cross, foolishness to some. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Through the same way of acting, this God brings both salvation and judgment at the same time. Uh, Peter says this similarly. He talks about the cornerstone being Jesus. And he says the cornerstone, Jesus is the center of our salvation and all who trust in this Jesus will be saved. But in 1 Peter 2.6, he says it's also a stone, Jesus, that causes men to stumble and a rock that causes people to fall. Jesus came as the one who both saves and judges. Think about the day of Jesus' return that's promised throughout the New Testament. The day Jesus comes back is known as the day of salvation and as the day of destruction. God uses the same events to judge whom he wants to judge and to save whom he wants to save. It's the way he works throughout history. And I think the implications of this are actually profound for us. See, sometimes judgment is the way God makes himself known. He does it with Pharaoh. You rebel against me, I will make myself known that you need to sit under my judgment for you have turned your back on me. That's a very real reality. It's something that we don't often think about with this God. We like to put him in, oh, he's all nice and dandy. And he's always for, you know, just everything good for me. He's always after my best interests. But to some, he comes with the reality of what we all deserve, and that is judgment. The implications are huge. What does this mean? (laughs) We need to come to him prayerfully, asking him to forgive us. We need to be obedient to this God. He is not someone to be mucked around with. He's not some schoolyard scrap in the backyard. You are standing before the creator of the universe when you meet Yahweh. And the New Testament will say when you meet Jesus. It should motivate us to come to him. For if he is this God, if it has been so offensive for us to not treat him as that God, then in this time of patience, when God is waiting, he's holding back his full judgment, we should use that time to come to him. And recognize the hope we have in him. Third thing I want to point out through the plagues. It seems to me that there's something about God's nature here where he starts off soft and gets stronger. Uh, and you might think, well, turning the Nile to blood, that's not very soft, Rowan. You know, I don't know what your idea of soft is. You, know, you reject me, right, all your water sources to blood. But look at chapter 9, verse 13. Look at what God says here. Chapter 9, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh. Tell him, This is what Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, says, Let my people go, so they may worship me. Otherwise, I'm going to send all my plagues against you, your officials and your people. Then you will know there is no one like me in all the earth. 
By now, I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague and you would have been obliterated from the earth. However, I've let you live for this purpose. To show you my power and make my name known in all the earth. You are still acting arrogantly against my people by not letting them go. In other words, there was more in God's tank. And he's telling Pharaoh at this point, listen to me, son. Stop acting such like a, such an arrogant teenager swinging their fists at God and recognize that I am God and I will do what I will do. I will be who I will be. Stop pretending you're in control. You're not. But Pharaoh is still so stubborn. God unleashes his full force on him at that point. Imagine for a moment hearing those words from God. Obey me, or I will send on you the full force of what you deserve. That's worse than any justice system the world has ever seen. This is the one who speaks and creation comes into being. Imagine having the full power of him against us for rejecting him. It scares me. I don't think he's trying to scare us into just trusting him. It's the reality. Like if you stand on train tracks, you're going to get smashed by a train. You can't stop a train. You're not Superman. It doesn't happen. You reject the life-giving God. Well, on the day he comes to do what is right and just, you and I deserve to be under the full force, the full weight of his anger and fury towards us. I read a story recently of um, three young guys in the 1930s. Uh, they are kind of young punks, like to think themselves, you know, pretty good with their fists and, you know, they're, they're around in Detroit trying to make trouble. They jump on buses, pick fights with people, all, all that sort of stuff, what you do. Um, anyway, one day they jumped on a bus in Detroit uh, and there was a guy sitting up the back of the bus, kind of slouched down on the back seat. And they started kind of throwing insults at him as they normally did. Um, they, they said kind of rude stuff to him. He didn't respond, so they upped it. They're like, well, we'll really get under this guy's skin and we'll hassle him. And so they started saying even worse stuff, um, trying to offend him and trying to niggle him and annoy him. And then eventually, as they've been doing this on the bus ride all this time, being like, come on, I'm trying to start something, the guy stood up. At that moment, they realized he was taller than they originally thought. He was a little bigger than they originally thought as well. And as he walked past them on the bus, he reached into his pocket. And he pulled out of his pocket a business card, gave it to them without saying a word and got off the bus. The guys were like just sitting there, recognizing this guy's size. And they all gathered around the business card to read the words that were on the business card. And it only had three words on the card. Do you know what it said? Joe Lewis, boxer. They had just tried to pick a fight with a man who would two years later become the heavyweight boxing champion of the world. Uh, the number one boxer of that time. This guy is phenomenal. And they had tried to pick a fight with him. See how important it is to know people's names. <laughs> I will be who I will be. And I am Yahweh. And I made you. And I'm revealing to you who I am. So you might respond appropriately. For I love you and I care for you. 
Today, you've seen the business card of the creator of the universe. You've seen his power and his promises. You've seen his character and his nature. And unlike the Egyptians, you and I get to see it without experiencing the incredible loss they experienced. We get to learn from their lesson. We get to stand on the sidelines and see and how crazy we would be to not learn that lesson. Well, there's one more thing that this passage has at the center. One more thing we need to recognize throughout this whole section. It's really what we call the matter of the heart. All throughout this passage, we see that Pharaoh's heart is spoken of. It's talking about his heart. It's like it's on display for us. His heart kind of symbolizes, is recognizing his response to God. And the passage pushes us to say this, how will you respond to this God whose acts you've seen, whose business card you've recognized? While he's not yet unleashing his full justice and judgment, how will you respond? We see a number of things through these six chapters about Pharaoh's heart. In the earlier chapters, we see that Pharaoh's heart became hard. He hardened it towards God. You see that in 7 verse 13. However, Pharaoh's heart hardened. He did not listen to them as the Lord had said. And we see another group of kind of what happened with his heart. um, That on multiple occasions, it wasn't just that his heart hardened. It was that Pharaoh hardened his heart. He was the active one who was hardening his heart towards God, rejecting what God was saying. So look at 8.15. But when Pharaoh saw there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. But look at 9 verse 12. And this is going to change your picture of God. 9 verse 12. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not listen to them, as the Lord had told Moses. Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart. You want to see it again? Chapter 10 verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may do these miraculous signs of mine among them. And so that you may tell your son and grandsons how severely I dealt with the Egyptians and performed miraculous signs among them, and you will know that I am Yahweh. What do we do with that? Well, the first thing to note is none of us are innocent. Pharaoh is not innocent. He deserves the full unleashing of God's fury toward him for not listening to him. And I think there is a pattern there. Obviously, that Pharaoh does harden his own heart, but God is also hardening his heart as well to bring about his signs. God is not being unjust in this. In fact, he's being patient. He could be even more just and just bring destruction straight away and wipe Pharaoh out and with him, you and me right now. But he doesn't. But we do see that there are two competing ideas here. Human responsibility and God's sovereign choice. And if we take God's word as God's word, we must hold both of those together. We must not try and iron them out so we go, oh, yeah, yeah, it all works fine. Because the Bible holds both together. God is the one who saves, yet we are responsible for our actions. How does that work? It doesn't seem to make sense to us. But the Bible never shies away from it. So we've got to recognize these things are both true, not diminish one or the other. Secondly, The pattern we see is that Pharaoh's heart was hard to start with. 
And then God did harden his heart. I think what we see is that God never puts Pharaoh in a position he himself doesn't want to be in. Pharaoh doesn't want to listen to this God. Who is this Yahweh? He's put himself in that point. But the third thing I think we see is that, well, for many of us, as we hear this, we've got this desire in us that actually wants to get Pharaoh off the hook. We kind of hear, hear this and we go, but hang on a minute, if, if God is somehow sovereign and in control, if he, is, if he is the one who makes things happen and hardens Pharaoh's heart, then, you know, it's not really Pharaoh's fault at all, is it? Because God did it to him. And we kind of, we run to that side and we diminish the side that Pharaoh was still rebelling against God. And, and I wonder, why do I do that? Because I do it. Oh. There's this part of me that wants to get Pharaoh off the hook. And I wonder if it's because if I can get him off the hook, then I can get off the hook too. If I can say God was in control then, and there was nothing that Pharaoh could have done, then I'm happy to go, well, whew, well, it's your fault, God, not mine. I can just continue with my life. You're the one who does your actions full stop. We want to blame it on God. But the reality is, <laughs> I've turned my back on him too. As Paul writes his letter to the Romans, he takes this very passage to explain the character of this God. That you might see him as he is. And I hope this shapes our picture of him. He says this, Romans 9 verse 14. What shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore depend on man's desire or effort but on God's mercy for the scripture says to Pharaoh I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden what is the message for us here he is God I don't get to tell him how to act I don't get to stand on my righteous soapbox and say, that's not fair that you don't choose everyone. Because his response is, it's not fair I even choose you, but I do. Because of nothing we have done, because of nothing the Israelites have done, God chooses to love some just because he does. And Paul uses this passage here to make that reality very, very clear. He is God. When he speaks, listen to him. He does not delight in the death of the sinner at all, but longs that we come to him. But he chooses who he wants to choose. It does not depend on man's desire or effort. None of us are deserving of salvation. Now, I'm aware that makes many of us feel uncomfortable to say that I'm not in control of my own destiny. And I'm also aware of the temptation to want to change what the Bible says about God, to mold him to be a little bit more attractive than he actually is. (laughs) Never do that. To think that I can make God look more attractive is just as offensive to him as me ignoring him totally. Let me tell you, Bono, how to sing properly idiot Rowan 
He is God and He has no rivals. But the great news is that this God loves us. That He's made Himself known to us. We'll see next week what He does for the Egyptians and we'll see it pointing forward to Jesus. But let me give you a sneak peek. We deserve to be standing face to face with the God of all fury for what we have done. Yet in Jesus, he has made himself known, even more so than the name Yahweh made himself known then. But now we might know God, the son who came in the flesh. And like a man being scorched with the full flames of a thousand suns, Jesus took God's fury on himself for us so that we could be forgiven. And Jesus says these words in John 14, 6. It's in the context of knowing God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. In the same act of judgment where God's wrath was poured out on Jesus at the cross, God was in Jesus reconciling the world to himself that we might stand forgiven by accepting God's promise, his word, that Jesus is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. But no one comes to the Father except through him. It's funny, the very next chapter of Romans, from Romans 9, Romans 10, Paul says these words, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Is this picture of God the way you view him? Have you come to him and given him your life? We are responsible, like Pharaoh, to respond to God in a right way. And I am so thankful that God has made that way known in Jesus. That in him, our sins are forgiven and our life is offered. Do you know this God, friends? Do you know him? Do you take him for who he is and do you live in response to that? His name is Jesus, and he is the king. Is he yours? Let's pray.